Last weekend we marked the occasion of uh, the Southeast Asian New Year, the Buddhists in Sri Lanka and Burma and Thailand and Laos and Cambodia and perhaps beyond um, celebrated the beginning of the new year and there was the traditional ritual of um, bathing the Buddha image and and also going through the uh, tradition of asking for forgiveness beginning the new year with this asking for forgiveness, whatever one may have done, by body, speech or mind, intentionally or unintentionally, uh, to the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, and to our parents, to our friends, to ask for forgiveness and to begin again. And this weekend, it's the um, one of the biggest uh, Christian festivals, the Easter celebration. Mm. And... Also, similarly, in the Christian tradition, the, this theme of asking for forgiveness and longing to be forgiven is very significant. It's, it's a big thing. So within the world's, some of the world's, well, all the world's greatest religions, I would suggest, is uh, this encouragement to develop a heart of forgiveness, to learn to be able to do this. But not just in religion, also those who have no religion. And it's often the case that people will, uh, you see, the beginning of a new year will, will want to ask for forgiveness what's happened in the past and, and begin again. It's clearly a theme for, for all human beings, actually. This, the burden of whatever it is, this unforgiveness, what is this? resentment, this particular form of human struggle. Now we have all sorts of struggles. We we get hungry and we get greedy and we struggle over that and we get afraid and confused and anxious and worry and we struggle over that. But we also have this thing of being hurt and then being caught in resentment and not knowing how to forgive. So it's a big thing and uh, something certainly that um, is, well, you know, it's wise from the Buddhist sense to contemplate this you know, not just to get our head around it but to get our heart around it what's really going on and what can we get to the source of this unforgiveness this resentment now now I say not just getting our head around it, but getting our heart around it, because you know, we all know how we should be. You know, in our heads, we can idealise about how we should be. We've all been told that we should be forgiving and loving and kind and generous and open-hearted, 
and to the degree we've experienced that, of course, we prefer it over being resentful, mean, bitter and nasty. Yeah. We would all like to be free from the burden of resentment. And yet just telling ourselves how we should be or imagining how we should be or idealising about how others should be uh, doesn't work. Uh, it's not enough. And so that's why I say that it's wise to see if we can get our heart around it, to look into the heart of the matter. What is at the source of forgiving or resenting? What's really going on there? And now I specifically mention this because although from one sense, one perspective, it's terribly obvious this is not our, perhaps not our automatic approach to addressing life's difficulties. Yeah. Isn't it often the case that when we're struggling, we just start imagining how it could be otherwise? Yeah. shouldn't be this way. Yeah. I shouldn't be so resentful. You know, my brother does... Well, actually, my brother's not a problem for me, but you know what I mean. We can... We can all get very heavy on ourselves about how we should and shouldn't be. But we, we need to register that, that the theory has its place, you know, like we've talked about many times before in Buddhist practice. Pariyati, pati, pati, patiwati. Pariyati theory has its place, you know, like a recipe book. You know, you can basically you can carry on in the kitchen trying to make hot cross buns and and just end up with rock cakes, or you can look at a recipe book and make something really yummy, which Rolf did the other day, which was very nice of him. Now, if you didn't do that, you, you could have wasted the materials and and broken somebody's teeth. Now, similarly, with the heart concerns, just having the theory, which is this abstraction which goes on in our heads about how we should be, yes, it's got its place, it orients our attention, but then we need to go deeper. And this is what pawana, the word pawana in Pali, pawana, cultivating, jitta pawana, cultivating the heart, taking the attention, the discipline of attention, to bring it out of our head, orienting our attention towards the issue, not just distracting ourselves. You know? So aligning ourselves with, yeah, I want, to, I want to get, I want to interested in this. What's really going on? My goodness, the suffering in the world that's created by resentment and you know, between individuals, relationships, nations, within myself, my own life, my family. I get interested in this. And so we use our thinking to direct our attention, but then we've got to go deeper and, and start to feel what's behind it. So just idealizing can, in fact, make it worse. You know, we can just make things a lot worse by going on about how we should be because we, it doesn't work and you start feeling guilt and then you end up being you end up being completely riddled with guilt and this happens you know people have um, have very good intention in my case I'm sure my parents wanted me to turn out to be a really happy integrated lovely human being but I uh, my experience of uh, my early life education was on every Sunday I'd come back from church and I want to throw up I just, I just felt riddled with guilt. I don't know what they did to me in church there, but I'd come back. I didn't even want to eat the meal. I felt so sick. I was physically nauseous. 
And here's all these good people doing good stuff. And, and I, I mean, maybe not everybody had the same sort of kind of trauma that I had in, <laughs> in church, but, but uh, something like that does happen to a lot of people that you end up getting told the story that you damaged goods. And if you can't forgive, then there's something wrong with you. Now, this is, uh, from the Buddhist perspective, this is idealizing. This is just saying, this is just being in the level of theory. This is not reality. This is not life. What we need to do is, is put this judgment to one side about how we should be. We all know how we should be. We know how we want to be, free from resentment. But then what we need to do is accept what we've got and start to inquire into it. Start to look into what's actually going on. And this is where formal practice is so important. And more than just thinking about how we should be, yes, reading other people who do live with a heart of forgiveness, of radiant loving kindness, and, and if you've had the, the, the great privilege of meeting such people, well, that's wonderful. But if what we've got is a heart of resentment, then sometimes what's called for is to put to one side our judging and thinking and just say, it feels like this. And this, and this is where formal practice we can't, we can't overstate the case of the benefit of formal practice to, to learn to go beyond the thinking, to learn to go beyond the judging, to learn to go beyond the comparing, you know, comparing ourselves with how we think we should be. This is me, mean, miserable, nasty, resentful get that I am. You know. <laughs> and I imagine myself this wonderful, radiant, loving kindness, and I've got to strive to become the character here. Well, there comes a time in practice where we've got to just sort of drop all that. Stop the judging. You know, come back until we start to become really familiar with a quality of awareness that's not picking and choosing. Not taking sides. Not judging. Not having an opinion. Yeah. That quality of awareness that does not have to have an opinion about resentment. Then we're in the position we can investigate. So long as we are compulsively having an opinion about resentment and lack of forgiveness, we can't really investigate it. It's like, you know, if you, you, you're watching a really good movie in a really complicated plot and you're watching this movie and you've got somebody next to you yabbering away and say, he did this and he said, you know what happened at work today? I mean, how can you follow the story if some idiot is distracting you? Well, isn't that what it's like with our minds? We, I want to follow the story of this resentment. This resentment is ruining my life. I want to get to the base of it and undo it and let go. That's what I'm really interested in. And there's this yappy, 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 yappy going on about, yeah, he did this, yeah, yeah. endless, carry on. It's crazy. You know, how do we deal with it? That's what formal practice is about. That's the medicine. So this is, you know, if we want to get to the source of the struggle of our lack of forgiveness... We need more than just idealizing about how we should and shouldn't be. And we put to one side, we learn to put to one side this capacity of the mind to analyze. Now, being able to discriminate is wonderful. It's very important to be able to discriminate. If you can't discriminate, you can't assess which situations are safe and which ones are dangerous, which food is healthy and which is junk, which people you can trust and which ones you've got to be careful with. 
Yeah, discriminative intelligence is really important. But if we, as most of us have, suffer the kind of education where that's all we get is discriminative intelligence, it's praised above everything else, scientific education, always thinking, comparing, analysing, speculating uh, and judging, it becomes compulsive. And when we've got something that we need a, a broader sense of, like this, this really wild, resentful energy that's eating away at my well-being, we need to broaden our field of awareness and hold it without conditioned reactivity and manipulation and interference and just see it for what it is. But it's very difficult. Most of us find it very difficult. But it's important to understand the task. This is important. Discriminative intelligence is precious, absolutely. But also, to really benefit from it, we need to be able to disengage from it. So I'll come back to that later. Come back to discriminative intelligence later. Right now, we're looking at a unitive intelligence, a silent awareness that just receives... And from that perspective, as I was saying, we can really investigate. And what we're, doing, what we're looking at is, is a fundamental shift in our relationship to resentment so it's no longer defining our life. We know we should let go of resentment. You know. He did that to me and I was terribly hurt and I didn't deserve it and he was wrong and I was right and here we are, ten years later, still dwelling on it. I mean, how stupid is that? You know, not just in our personal relationships, I mean... Nations, you know, religions, you know, Roman Catholics and Protestants, you know, they, they both say the same Lord Prayer, I think, don't they? Lead us not into temptation and trying to be good. And what do they do to each other? I mean, you know, was, was it King James who upset the Protestants? And, and so they brought William in from Holland and then he upset the Roman Catholics, something along those lines. Wasn't it? And here we are hundreds of years later and they're still talking about it. They can't forgive each other for it. Yeah. Well, what was it, that bunch of deranged Italians, they drew a line across this lovely country, this lovely island where we've all been living together and for however long, since the beginning of time, this bunch of inflated Italians come and draw a line across it and ever since, the people north of the line, the people south of the line have been fighting each other. Now, what's that? That's madness, isn't it? I mean, some of the vitriolic statement stuff that's been coming out of this current campaign for... Independence is, you know, you say, well, are these people crazy or what? I mean, you know, we all live on this little island. Why can't we just cooperate and be happy? That's all we want, isn't it? Is be happy. And yet, what do we do? We harbour resentment. I mean, that is crazy. That is crazy. We want to be happy. We've got all the causes for it. And yet, we do things that make ourselves unhappy. Why? Well, there's something in there. And the Buddha, well, the Buddha word for it, of course, as you all know, is ignorance. Unawareness. Because of this element, this distortion, this warp in the psychosphere, this, this distortion in our seeing means that we don't see things as they actually are. When wisdom is not functioning, we don't see reality. We see resentment. This is the thing. We see resentment and we think by clinging to it we're going to be happy. Just like a child sees a burning coals in the fire and thinks, oh, I'm going to grab that and that's the you know, I'll be happy when I stick my hand in the fire. And, of course, they stick their hand in the fire and then they suffer. And so it is for us. Well, children learn fairly quickly, but we don't. You know, we can go on and spend our whole life 
dwelling on resentment, when from the Buddhist perspective of realizing that in which resentment arises and ceases, the pure heart, the heart that's free from resentment, realizing the reality of that, that in which resentment arises and ceases and knowing the truth of that, from that perspective, the Buddha pointed out, it's not an obligation. There is no such thing as a victim in this case. Actually, the truth is we're choosing. We're choosing to invest negative emotion in an otherwise neutral memory. That's the theory again. But it's a really important bit of theory. But more than just theory, they're saying what we need to do is to take our attention deeper and start to feel that. And this is where formal practice is so really important. And I can remember a, um, a retreat that we had here in the Dhamma Hall a few years ago. It was a, it was a monastic retreat, but uh, due to unforeseen circumstances, we did uh, allow a guest to come and stay on the retreat with us. And which we didn't normally do because, you know, we have some quite busy time and when we have a period for just the monastic community to get still and get a little inner, it's, it's important and we like to protect it. But on this occasion, well, it was the right thing to do. And so, But anyway, I can remember sitting here on my cushion facing the shrine one afternoon, meditating around. Mine was peaceful. And this person, this guest, didn't seem to have the same level of restraint as the monastic community and and they seemed to uh, not be aware how much noise they made when they were shuffling around on their cushion just down there about where Jason is sitting so anyway I was sitting there this one time facing the shrine nice and peaceful and then it started they got off their cushion in fact it wasn't a cushion it was one of those clunky wooden stools and then banged it down on the the wooden floor next to them But what was different, and I remember this vividly now, what was different for me on that occasion was there was enough calm and enough sati to catch the mind before it chose to invest the negativity. And that is really worth seeing. When you see that you've got a choice, when you see you've got a choice, it's not an obligation. The perception is just so. You know, like Ajahn Chai with when the monks were living in Hampstead and some of them were complaining about, oh, Lumpur, how can we live here and meditate with a pub across the road and the noise comes and disturbs our meditation. And Ajahn Chai was a hoi. An expression he used to have. <laughs> so the noise is not disturbing you. You're disturbing the noise. The noise is just so. The sound is just so. If you stay still and don't move, there's no problem. What's the issue? The issue is this compulsive reaction. Now, again, that's nice theory, but if you can engage in the spiritual discipline sufficiently, with sufficient sensitivity and consistency and subtlety, to get to the point where it happens and you see, all right, there is a choice. There's a choice whether you're going to invest negative emotion in that perception or not. And that's wonderfully strengthening, wonderfully strengthening, tremendous Confidence comes from that. Tremendous faith comes from that. And now, now we're talking about a faith and practice that's not just spurious faith. We're not talking about belief. We're talking about something that's based on experience. Ajahn Sawang has come to live with us here. And so the Thai people, um, we're very happy about this, by the way. And, and the Thai people are going to be coming and they're going to be bringing, there's this food that they eat in the northeast of Thailand called som dam. 
Somtam Mahung. And I tell you, Somtam Mahung is very special. Now, if you've never eaten it, you think, oh, that's curious. Oh, yeah, green papaya, and it's laced with lemon juice and salt and, and chilies and fermented fish and rocket fuel. And, and, you know, well, isn't that fascinating? And, you know, oh, yeah, I must try that someday with my sticky rice. But when you've eaten it, <laughs> you experience somtam machung. You know the next time you'll be more restrained, you know, because you can really damage yourself with this stuff. Uh, there was, a, there was a, an experience when Ajahn Sumedha was a young monk and he didn't know what the stuff was and he liked the look of it. He thought it was an interesting kind of salad, you know, something they do in California. And, and uh, so he took a whole big lot of it and uh, he just exploded into fire. And Ajahn Chah, I think, it was very funny. Anyway, <laughs> it, uh, the experience actually inspired restraint from that point onwards. Well, so it is. So it is if we can still the activity of the mind down enough so things are a little slower until you something like that happens as a stimulus and then like the memory of she said this and then you 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 got the choice are you going to invest negativity in it or not and this is not theory we're not talking about what's going on here we're talking about the experience that the the choice is in the image now even when you've had such an experience and that gives a lot of confidence that doesn't mean to say that you, from that point onwards, have the sati, have the presence of mind, to be able to exercise restraint. You know, it's one thing to be able to get this initial perspective, uh, seeing what, what, what can be done, which is very energizing, inspiring, uplifting, and strengthening, and giving an inner sort of strength. You know, we can, this is where strength comes from. It's a much more, it's an embodied strength. This is not just the strength of having a strong opinion. You know, strong opinions, anybody can do that. You read some rubbish somewhere and you come out and spouting it and sound like you know what you're talking about and you've got a, it's called having a strong opinion, which, you know, can be praised and so on, but not really trustworthy, is it? It's not something we really admire. But, but where there's a, a quiet strength where you say, all oh, right, yeah. I've seen that, you know. It changes the way you relate to things. But as I was saying, that doesn't mean to say that we then have the sati from that point onwards to exercise restraint. You know, we can still lose it. But we know why, and we, we don't go blaming other people then. You know, you know, all right, that was my mistake. And then what do you do? Then you want to take responsibility for it, which is very different from when you don't know that it's my mistake, that I had a choice. Yeah. When we don't know that, we don't feel that, we very easily end up blaming other people. Right? A few days ago, I, um, I made a bit of a mistake in the morning. I, I came in and I wasn't in a very good mood and um, I uh, lost my temper with somebody, very unsuitable. And um, I, I shouted at them in a very unpleasant way. And, um, I mean, there were causes for it. It was Ajahn Punyo, he was away, and, <laughs> and Ajahn Abhinanda, he was away. All the other monks were away, and so I'm overworked and underpaid as usual. And, and, uh, <laughs> and I had I'd taken some medicine for my, my sad, sorry knees, and I didn't sleep all night. And, and then I had coffee before breakfast in the morning, which is not always a very good idea. And then I came into the breakfast room in the morning, and somebody said something that... I didn't like, and I let them have it. Boom. And, um, 
And that was a mistake. That was heedless and it caused some hurt. But what was interesting was to see how quickly I wanted to apologise. You know, to say that was my fault. You know, one, when, there's, when there's some understanding that you've got the ability, that you really do have this ability to invest negative emotion in the perception or not, potentially anyway, when you see that, then, and you see how it makes you strong, then you want to forgive. So you're not just, you're not just idealising about how you should be forgiving. You want to forgive and ask for forgiveness. And it, it creates a, an inner sort of a strength. So, but it's still, um, you know, it can still be very difficult. It's not, uh, doesn't mean to say the story's over, but at least we've got a source of energy. We've got a source of confidence. And we know what works. You know, what makes us strong and what makes us weak. Where real power lies. I was thinking, I was contemplating this theme recently and uh, remembering that uh, rather harrowing movie that um, some of you might have seen, Schindler's List. And there's a, there's a scene in there where, where this Ralph Fiennes character who's a, who's a kind of and a really nasty psychopathic uh, guy who is commenting that his power comes from knowing that he can kill any Jew when he wants to. That's where he gets his power from. But then Liam Nielsen's character, Oscar Schindler, he points out, he said, well, no, he said, actually, you know, what's really interesting is the power that you know you can kill, but you choose not to. That's different. And uh, contemplating this, I think, well, actually, they're both right. They're both power. But one's wholesome, one's unwholesome. There's this theory, there's this idea around that all power corrupts. I disagree with that. I've always thought that was a little bit of a a naive assessment. And the Buddha was one of the most powerful human beings. Well, I would say the most powerful human being that ever lived on the planet. And he certainly wasn't corrupted. Well, I suppose it does perhaps depend on how you define power. But for me, power is is the potential to effect change. And the Buddha did effect change. He brought about a transformation on the planet. The inner power to change consciousness from that which is possessed by resentment to that which is forgiving and beautiful... That power is worth having. That's, that's wholesome. That's wholesome power. That's definitely worth, worth cultivating. So the uh, contemplation, the recognition of, of what is it that makes us strong and the determination, the interest in this actuality of resentment can take us in the direction we need to go. Not just trying to bypass the resentment where imagining how it must be to be a version of me that doesn't resent people. But allowing, with mindfulness, with restraint, we're not talking about indulging in resentment, not at all, but with restraint, with mindfulness, with a humble, willing receptivity of, this is what resentment feels like. It really hurts. And then if we are successful in bringing enough calm and stillness to our heart and mind until we have one of those moments where we get to see that we've got a choice whether we're going to invest this negative energy into the memory. The memory itself, 
is just so. Things that have happened in the past, we're not going to unremember them. What we might do as we get older, the brain cells might die off, but no guarantee about that. The memories are there, but are we obliged, are we victims to these incidents that have happened to us? Maybe the things that we did do intentionally, maybe we made some bad mistakes, intentional harming of others. Maybe there were things that happened to us that we didn't have any intention about. But are we obliged to suffer? Well, from the Buddhist perspective, no, absolutely not. No such thing as a victim. But we need to go beyond just believing in that until we actually see it. And then you start to see it, you start to see it for yourself. And then, as I was saying, confidence arises. The confidence then leads to more restraint, more mindfulness. And then the restraint and the mindfulness leads to letting go. And the letting go leads to contentment and ease. Now, this, uh, this contentment that the Buddha and the great teachers realized and expressed and talked about, it's important that we don't uh, fall for the superficial assessment or assumption around contentment that sometimes people level as criticism of Buddhists that, that contentment is the same as complacency. That's not what we're talking about. The, the contentment of the heart that is free is the contentment that's imbued with the word the Buddha used was, was chanda, dhamma chanda, which means enthusiasm, zeal. It's a type of desire. It's a kind of desire that doesn't give up until it reaches the goal. There's dhamma chanda, this enthusiasm, this energy, which is directed towards liberation. When there's contentment associated with this kind of enthusiasm, then we're talking about the power that does bring about really wholesome change and conduces with the arising of wisdom. So the goal of practice is not even necessarily being somebody who forgives everybody or doesn't harbour resentment or whatever, but the goal, I would suggest, is the realisation of this faculty which the Buddha talked about, the faculty of wisdom. Wisdom is like a faculty, an inner faculty. We have these faculties of hearing and seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, and and um, we have the inner faculties and the spiritual faculties and yeah. faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. Wisdom. It's a faculty which can be activated. I remember when I was living with a great meditation master, Venerable Ajahn Tate, and he asked the monks there, he said, the eye uses a mirror to see itself. How does the mind see itself? And uh, as I remember, nobody got the answer right. So he answered it himself and said, wisdom. Yeah. People, people say, what is wisdom? They say, wisdom is this. It's like, how does the eye see? Well, I mean, we don't ever ask that question, do we? I mean, none of us have ever asked, how does the eye see? Unless you're an ophthalmologist or something. <laughs> How does the eye see? Well, we just do it. The eye just does it. Consciousness has this potential, this capacity for knowing the tr- reality, the truth of the way things are. For instance, it can know, when there's wisdom there, it can know that choosing to ask for forgiveness actually doesn't make us weak, like the ignorant, unaware mind assumes. When I forgive this person because they hurt me, it's going to make me weak. Wisdom 
sees it otherwise. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.